me encourage you, go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 9. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. And uh, the book of Acts, as we have said, is all about God's people. After Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead, he spent a little bit of time on earth. And then he ascended back to heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And before he did, he commissioned those who would follow him to take his message about the good news that Jesus died in our place, was buried and raised now for us to have new life, and he rules and reigns over all creation, for us to take that message from there where they were in Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the first eight chapters of the book we've gone through so far have been seeing the church do just that. Most of it has been taking place in Jerusalem as they've been sharing the gospel, and we've been seeing people come to Christ by the thousands that they've been surrendering to him, putting their faith and trust. Now, when we got to chapter 7, we saw that Things weren't going real well because we had Stephen who gave his, uh, his speech before the Sanhedrin and ultimately was put to death. In fact, we're kind of picking back up a little bit with some of the things we saw with Stephen. Then we took a little bit of a break last week as we saw, last two weeks, excuse me, as we looked at what God did through Philip as the church was scattered after Stephen's death and they got dispersed throughout the region. And so then as they got dispersed, we saw that Philip the evangelist was taking the gospel to Samaria and then to the Ethiopian official that we talked about last week. So over the last few weeks, we have really been looking at what genuine faith looks like. We saw that the the magician Simon, Simon Magnus, as he's sometimes referred to, was a guy who seemed like he believed in God, seemed like he had put his faith in Jesus, but it was all about the externals for him. There was no inward heart change. And so last week, we looked at the Ethiopian official who, when he started hearing about who Jesus was, his heart was transformed and he surrendered to Christ, was baptized, and as far as we know, was the first missionary to Africa as he went back to his own home region. So then this morning, here's where we're picking back up. We've got one more kind of salvation story that we're going to dig into this morning. This is a guy named Saul. Now, keep your finger there in chapter 9, by the way. Flip back to the end of chapter 7, if you will, for me, just real quick. Um, This is where Stephen, after he's been talking and he's been giving his address before the Sanhedrin and he has shown that they're rejecting the Messiah, just like their forefathers had always rejected the prophets that God sent, So then we pick up in verse 57. It says, They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, together rushed against him, and that's Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay? Then if you go down to chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. We're picking back up in the story of this guy named Saul. By the way, I want to make one quick side note. As you go through this story, interesting thing, sometimes you hear preachers say, and I've said it in the past before I was corrected on it, that God changed Saul to Paul. Now, there's a dramatic difference in Saul's life before and after his conversion, but there's never actually a time where God changed his name. When, God, when Luke starts changing his name here in the book of Acts, it's when he shifts from witnessing primarily to Jews to primarily to Gentiles. So when he goes from Saul to Paul, so Saul would be his name in Hebrew or Aramaic. Paul would be his name in Latin or Greek, okay? It's kind of like John, Juan, Sean. They're all the same basic name depending on which dialect. And in case you've ever wondered where mine comes from being spelled all weird, it's because it's Irish, which makes no sense. Um, anyway, um, my... Mother was unhappy with my name, but she was sedated because she'd had a C-section, so my dad named me before she woke up. Um, (laughs) True story. (laughs) All right? So anyway, as we're diving in this morning, though, here's the thing that I want you to see. 
As I went through, I, you know, there's no point in trying to wordsmith something that's this important. The title of this morning's message is simply this. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what's taking place, no matter how good you've been or how bad you've been, as we'll see this morning, the overarching theme that we see through Saul's conversion here is that no matter who you are and what you've done, you need Jesus. We're going to make it plain and simple. We're going to look at that from two different perspectives this morning. But first, let's read the story of what God did with Saul. Saul in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Like, legitimately, he wanted to kill people who followed Jesus. You, you get that? Like, w- sometimes when we read Scripture, it's so quick or so sanitized almost that, that we miss. This is a guy who held everybody's coats so they could kill the first Christian, and he wanted to do it again, okay? So Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he traveled, he was nearing Damascus. A light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. He was unable to eat or drink for three days. He couldn't see for three days, and he didn't eat or drink. Excuse me. So then he goes on, and as it continues on, we'll look next week more at Ananias and the next few things. But in this moment, Jesus called out to Saul on his way to Damascus to throw more Christians in prison. And in the process, he met with Jesus and was radically transformed. Now, here's what I want you to see as we look at Saul's life and Saul's story. We're going to have to pull in from some other passages of Scripture to get a better picture of what's going on here and just how dramatic it was that this guy followed Jesus. Now, the first thing that I want you to see, and this is going to sound a little counterintuitive at first, but but track with me, okay? First thing I want you to see is that, number one, you are never so good that you don't need Jesus, okay? You are never so good that you don't need Jesus. Now, wait a second. Didn't we just say that Paul's a murderer who sought to kill Christians? So, so why would we start with him being a good guy? Well, let's, let's set the murder aside for a second here. And let's look at Paul's life using a, a common way of thinking. Now, before I have Jamie put this up, I have not looked at the parking lot today. I do not know if any of you have this particular bumper sticker on your car. I'm not attempting to ridicule. I'm not attempting to dismiss, but I want to explain, okay? How many of you have seen, this represents a very common idea in our culture, these bumper stickers that say coexist, okay? There's another one that says tolerance that's similar. Now, the common idea in our culture is this. If you are just sincere about what you believe and you try really hard and you're a pretty good person by most people, all roads lead to the same point. 
right? The idea is that God is the top of a mountain, that you can take many different roads or many different paths to be able to get to God. That's part of the idea behind this coexist bumper sticker. Now, let me go ahead and be honest with you. There is, I am not advocating for the, us to go out on jihad or in some kind of holy war and kill those who don't believe the same things we do, okay? That's not what, we're, what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is, when you look at just this bumper sticker as a representative sample, there is no way on earth that this makes sense, okay? Here's why. Let's look at the various symbols that are involved here. The first one you see there is a crescent moon that represents Islam, who teaches that salvation is based on your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds before, when you stand before Allah in judgment. So you need to do as many good works as you can, including this particular statement that you are required to make as a Muslim. I bear witness that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. You cannot be saved in Islam if you do not say that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. As Christians, we reject both of those. Then next, you see a peace symbol. Now, a peace symbol is often used to to talk about kind of the idea of humanity, specifically represent a religious system as such, but it's the idea that if we try hard enough, people will be able to get along without conflict and, uh, you know, kind of think Lennon and McCartney songs and stuff like that as you think through this. The idea is, you know, we can all just get along if we try hard enough, you know, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, right? That's kind of the idea integrated in the peace symbol. If we were just good enough, we would be able to get past it, and that denies the biblical doctrine that says we are born sinners and that we're never going to be able to fix ourselves. Next, you have the E has the male symbol and the female symbol, again, pointing to a humanistic type of salvation, that life is about us being men and women just kind of getting along through it. Then you see the Star of David, which symbolizes Judaism. The Judish requirements for salvation depend on which particular branch you follow. There's three main main branches. Uh, They vary from repentance, prayer, and obedience to the Torah, if you're an Orthodox Jew, or all the way to the Reformed branch, which says that salvation really is just the betterment of self and society. Okay? Now, are you seeing the problem with all of this so far? Next, you have a pagan or a Wiccan symbol that is all about unity with nature and unifying the the common forces in nature. In fact, it can be described as manipulating natural forces as we see the interconnectedness of all things, including ourselves with the divine oneness, which again, denies biblical doctrine, denies the doctrine of the Muslims, denies the doctrines that we're seeing through this. Then you have the yin-yang symbol. It's a, a Taoist symbol or Taoist symbol. This symbols a reliance on our ability to become aware of the way in which the Tao operates in the world and align ourselves with it. This results in a harmonious society and peace within ourselves. It says that good and evil are both necessary, which we do not believe as believers. We believe that that evil is a result of sin. It's not a necessary part of creation, that God himself is completely pure and holy and without blame or error, okay? So that doesn't work. And then finally, you have the Christian cross, that John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now, just using this as kind of a pop culture example, this idea that all roads lead to the same place and you can just be sincere in what you're doing, it just doesn't hold water. Now, that sounds bigoted, that sounds narrow, but the reality is truth by definition is narrow, right? Right? If, if we go outside, if, if I tell you, well, this carpet's multicolor, right? If I tell you that this is bright orange, I'm wrong, right? Now, is that narrow-minded? No, it's just the truth. Truth, by definition, is narrow-minded. 
So there's an idea in our culture that's very common that says, if I just am sincere enough, if I just am a good person, if I just believe that my thing, and I, I kind of say to myself and I do my thing, if I do that well enough, then I'll be right with whatever God's there. Well, it'll sort out in the end. And guys, that just doesn't work. See, that's where Paul would have been. If that was the common conception of religion, if that was true for a minute, that's, Paul would have never needed Jesus. Listen to how he described himself. Philippians chapter three, Paul's talking about the reasons he has for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, meaning in himself, in in who he is, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that's in the law, blameless. He was so sincere and so good at being a Jew that he was blameless in front of the law. Nobody could pin anything on this guy. And you know what you find out? As good a guy as he was, he needed Jesus. See, you are never so good that you don't need Jesus. He came from a thoroughly Jewish family who raised him in a great Jewish home. He could trace his lineage to prove he was truly a Jew. He was a Pharisee, which meant he had studied the law of Moses inside and out under one of the most respected teachers of that day, a guy named Gamaliel, who we saw a few chapters back, if you remember. He could go toe-to-toe with anybody and defend exactly what he believed. He was so zealous and so sincere in his belief that he actively sought out those who didn't and tried to destroy them. He was so devout, you couldn't find anything wrong with him. He had it all together. If that was enough to be saved, then he didn't need Jesus. But the reality is, he needed Jesus. That's why he would go on to say later in Philippians chapter 3, he said this, everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. You get it? All of that pedigree, all of that work, he said, it's loss, it's dung. He said, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. It's not about how sincere you are. It's not about how hard you try. None of us can save ourselves. It's simply about surrendering to Christ. I've mentioned this for the last few weeks, and I told the praise team this morning, I think the reason that God keeps bringing this back up is because some of us don't get it the first time. In fact, none of us ever get it the first time we hear something, right? One of the most religious, the best men in history is telling you today that it isn't any good if you don't know Jesus. You catch that? No matter how much good stuff you've done, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, it's worthless. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name, and then I'll announce to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you lawbreakers. Let that sink in for a minute. Are there gonna be people from our church who stand before God and say, God, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And he says, I never knew you. You were trying to save yourself. 
You were trying to work really hard. You thought you could make it on your own when what you needed to do was surrender. And not just surrender to some religious system. Surrender specifically into a personal relationship with Christ. We've already seen in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. You get it? There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Period. End. Coexist is a great sentiment. And I agree that we shouldn't go out and beat up on people who don't believe the same things we do. But at the same time, all paths don't lead to the same destination. There's only one path that leads us to Christ, that leads us to eternal life. It's uncomfortable. It sounds narrow. It sounds bigoted. I get it. But the reality is, you are never so good that you don't need Jesus. I'm afraid if I asked many of you in this room why you would go to heaven, it would sound kind of like Paul in Philippians 3. I was raised in a Christian home. I've gone to church my whole life. I do good things. That's not how you get to heaven, folks. It's not. Now, if you'd been able to be perfect from the moment you were conceived till the moment you died, your works would be able to save you. But the reality is we're all born in sin. We've all chosen to sin. We've all fallen short of God's glory and we all deserve to die for it. Every single one of us. And the only reason that I'm saved today is because God loved me so much that he would die on the cross for my sin, take my sin and what I had done, die in my place and be raised from the dead so that now I could have new life. It wasn't because I was good or even that God saw that I would do good things for his kingdom. It's because he in his grace and in his mercy saved me because of his love, not because I deserved it. So now, like we said last week, we do the things that we do because of what God's done in us. We do this because of the love he's shown us. We do this because of the grace that he's given us, not to gain it, but because he's already given it. So you may be here and you may be well-respected, you may be well-thought of, but if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, you are not saved. And I love you so much that I'll tell you that. Okay? You're never so good that you don't need Jesus. You can never be good enough on your own. Now, some of you may be here, though, and you're on the opposite end of that spectrum. You say, Sean, I, <laughs> I know that I can't get to heaven by my own good works. In fact, I don't think there's any way I could get to heaven. Sean, if you knew what I'd done, Sean, if you knew what I was planning on doing this afternoon, <laughs> there's, there's no way God could save me. Look back at verse 3. Saul, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember it said that this was the guy who was ravaging the church. 
That was the word that was used there in verse 3 of chapter 8. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And Jesus said, no, you're not persecuting Stephen. You're not persecuting the church. You're persecuting me. Why? Because the Bible teaches that the church is the bride of Christ. You say something bad about my bride, you're saying it about me, right? Those are fighting words. So Jesus said, Saul, you're not just going after the church, you're going after me. Now think about it. This guy had a man murdered. He held everybody's jackets so that they could kill a guy. He was on his way to throw more people in jail. He was disrupting the work that God was going to do. And what did God do for Saul? He showed up on the road to Damascus, blinded him for three days so that he could come to know Jesus as his Savior and Lord. The guy who was responsible partly for the death of the first follower of Christ was able to be saved by the grace of God. You are, have to understand, you are never so bad that Jesus can't save you. You are never so bad that Jesus can't save you. You've never gone too far. All right, I want everybody to do this, okay? Some of you, I'm still questioning it as I'm looking out here, but do you have a pulse? right? Maybe it's easier for you to find it on your neck. For me, it is because my veins are probably bulging out by this point, right? Okay, you got a pulse? If you've got a pulse, then you can still be saved. If your child who's an adult and grown up and walked away from the Lord, if they've still got a pulse, they can still get saved. They've not gone too far. Look back at verse five. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. We recognize that although sin has different ramifications at its core, sin is sin and it's all destructive. However, in our way of thinking, surely a man who murdered Christians would have been seriously guilty of heinous crimes, right? Like if we were to make a list, that would be pretty high up on the list. Like murder in general is pretty tough. And then murdering Christians because they're Christians, that, that's, that's a whole other level. Surely if there was anyone that God wouldn't save, it would be someone who was so vehemently against Christ. Yet here, as he is in the very act of trying to destroy the church, which the Bible calls the bride of Christ, Jesus appears to Saul and saves him while he's on his way to do this. You know what that also tells us? You don't clean your life up and then get right with God. Saul's breathing murderous threats against the church on his way to throw them in prison, and that's when God saves him. It's not when Paul says, well, you know, I've been struggling with this for a while. Once I get over that, once I get this bad habit out of the way, then maybe I'll follow Jesus. Or, you know, once I got more time to think about it or, or, no, 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 that's not how it works. Jesus saves you. And then that salvation changes the way that you act and live and work and think and treat your spouse and treat your kids and spend your money and all of those kind of things. What's the message here? Well, Paul would later say it this way. First Timothy chapter one, he said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul called himself the worst or in other translations, the chief of sinners because he was acutely aware of his own sin. 
See, I know my sin. I may know sinful things that other people do, but I know my heart. I know my thoughts. I know my sin better than I know anybody else's. Paul was humble enough to say, when I look at my own sin and my own heart and my own life, I am the worst sinner out there because he knew himself. Did you hear why God saved him? So that Jesus could show that anyone could be saved. Listen to it again. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 again. I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Why did God save Paul? Why did God save this man named Saul? Why did God save him? To show you that you are not too far gone. Did you understand that? You, you may be watching today because you didn't feel like you could even come into church. You know, I've had plenty of people tell me before, oh, if I walked in the back of the church, man, that the building would fall down on top of me because of everything I've done. No, it wouldn't. Because there's a God in heaven who loves you so much that he's got you watching this. There's a God in heaven who's brought you, if you're here, he's brought you here to hear that he loves you so much and died in your place and you're not too far gone. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. Listen, the Bible says that we were all his enemies because of our sin. Romans chapter five. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that I was a sinner when God saved me at nine years old. That means, by the way, I still continue in sin. It's not my goodness, my righteousness that saves me. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You are never so bad that Jesus can't save you. Colossians chapter one says we all equally deserve to die for our sin just like Paul deserved to die and yet Jesus saved us. Colossians one, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. You see that? You were alienated from God. Your mindset was hostile towards God. But now when he presents you before the Father, you're holy, faultless, and blameless because of Jesus and what he's done. This morning, I want you to see clearly, you need Jesus. You're never so good that you don't need Jesus. I don't care how sincere you are, how hard you've worked, no matter what you've done, the reality is you cannot be saved apart from surrendering your life to Jesus and committing to following him as Savior and Lord, placing your life in his hands and his control. You may have been a member of a church for 65 years. If you've never genuinely surrendered to Christ, you need Jesus. The other thing is, you're never so bad that Jesus can't save you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you were planning to do. I don't care if you're coming in here hungover and really tired that I'm yelling at you. The reality is you need Jesus and he can save you. 
He can give you so much peace, so much hope, so much joy. If you wondered why some of us were crying during the service and it just doesn't make sense, it's because we think about the fact that our God has robbed the grave that stirs us at our core because we have a hope that transcends everything, not because of we've been good enough. You know, going back to Islam, you guys, you know, the cartoons where you have the, the angel that shows up on the one side and the demon that shows up on the other and tries to get you to do the good thing and the bad thing? That, that comes out of this Islamic concept that there's uh, an angel on one shoulder writing down all the good things you do, an angel on the other shoulder writing down all the bad things you do, and that when you stand before Allah, those two are going to be weighed in a balance. You would never be able to know how you actually turned out. If you've ever seen the show, The Good Place, it's a very interesting show and a lot of reasons. But one of the things that they run into is they find out that the computers that that count what's good and what's bad, they find out that because of everything is a contingent choice, nothing is actually good, right? Like if you say you buy fair trade organic coffee because you're trying to do good ecologically, well, then you find out that actually that was, you know, underpaid laborers in Colombia who are having to work for a drug lord to not kill their family. So you think you're buying the good thing, but actually there's something bad with it and all this kind of thing. You would never be able to know if it came down to your works, your goodness versus your badness. Here's what I can tell you. Looking at God's word, not a one of us would stand. I would not want to put my best day on that scale. So here's what I get to do instead. The Bible says that at the final judgment, when it's all meted out, that there's books that are written with everything I've ever done in it. And those books will be open, and every person in human history will be judged by what's written in those books. There's another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then that's all covered. Not because of what I've done, but because Jesus already paid the debt for all of that. God doesn't just dismiss it, sweep it under the rug. God put all of that on Jesus. So because of what he's done, and my name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I can live with hope and joy and peace you'll never find anywhere else. So my challenge for you this morning is, do you know? Not think, not hope. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have surrendered your life to Jesus as your Savior and Lord and you're trusting in him and him alone for eternal life? If not, you need Jesus. So what I want us to do is I want to give you a few moments just to take some time and make that decision now before you leave. By the way, I hinted at it earlier. Some of you have somebody you love dearly. Maybe it's a adult child who's grown up and gotten away from the Lord. Maybe it's a good friend of yours that you've been praying for for years. And you look at their life right now and you see what they're posting on Instagram and Facebook and you say, there's just no way. There's just no way. If God can save Saul, God can save them. Never, ever, ever stop asking God to save them. The story is told of George Mueller, who's a, a man who believed God for a lot of things and had a tremendous prayer life, prayed for two different men for 50 years for them to be saved. The one man came to Christ shortly before Mueller's death. The other came to Christ shortly after. After 50 years of praying. You're never so good that you don't need Jesus. You're never so bad that he can't save you.
bow your heads with me, close your eyes for just a moment. Now, we're not going to do anything weird. We just ask you to bow your head and close your eyes because if you're like me, it's easy to get distracted. So in the quietness of this moment, before God, have you ever truly, once and for all, transferred your trust to Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Nobody's looking around this morning. I want to do something we don't often do. If you're here this morning, though, and you say, Sean, I'm not really sure that I've ever actually made that decision to follow Jesus, would you just kind of slip your hand up real quick just so I can see, so I can be praying? Okay. If you're here and you're watching online or if you're here in person with us and you realize you've never made that decision to follow Christ, I want to invite you to do that right now. There's no magic incantation. There's no sets of words that you're supposed to pray. Basically, I just want you to express to God what's in your heart. Say, God, I know that I've sinned and I can't be good enough. I know that Jesus died to forgive me my sins. I know he was raised from the dead to give me his life. And I want to follow him. Just something like that. Again, there's no magic words here. Just talk to God about what's going on in your heart. If you want help making that decision or if you want to talk to somebody about making that decision, I'm going to give you a moment where Morgan's going to be playing here at the piano and just continuing with her head bowed and eyes closed for you to come down here and talk with me about it. And I'd love to talk with you more if you've got more questions or want prayer or whatever it is. If you're here today, though, and you know that you've made that decision to follow Jesus, then is there somebody that came to mind today that you know does not yet have a relationship with Christ that needs him. Take this time and just pray for them. Let me pray for us, and then you continue with your head bowed and eyes closed. If you need to follow Jesus today, if you want to come down and make these steps an altar and just pray, sometimes it's helpful to let the outward posture of our body reflect the inward posture of our hearts. So you can just use these steps to kneel and just ask God to save this individual or save you if that's what you need. So, Father, we do ask that you would move and work. We know that you're the only one who can draw people to himself. So, God, through your spirit, would you convict hearts right now? Would you help us to respond as you see fit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.